welcome to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Julia Kanzler. She is an environmental sociologist who focuses on indigenous issues and used to be an environmental lawyer. Now she works at the University of San Diego and focuses on teaching law and sociology classes. Thank you for joining our show today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so would you like to tell us about your path? What, what do you do? What um, inspires you? Oh, great questions. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I'm an environmental sociologist, um, but it's kind of taken a long and, and twisted journey to get to this point. Um, right now, my focus is on um, environmental inequalities and environmental justice issues, specifically impacting the rights of Indigenous people. Um, I started out in college as an American history major. Um, and was interested in and in learning a lot about Native American issues in the context of the American West, which was my focus. And University of Colorado, where I went to undergrad, was wonderful in terms of having amazing indigenous scholars who were really inspiring and um, who provided a, a way of rethinking about American history in a lot more relevant way where um, our contemporary social realities are really implicated. Um, so afterward, I decided to go to law school, also at the University of Colorado, um, to continue my emphasis on Native American law in particular. And again, there were just amazing scholars and mentors there, including the founders of the Native American Rights Fund. Uh, many of those lawyers had represented tribes on some of the biggest issues and cases. Uh, so it was really amazing to be trained by them. Um, and then I graduated and worked for three years as an attorney representing Indian tribes and local Native American clients, uh, mostly on issues of environmental protection um, and cultural repatriation and other issues related to Native sovereignty. Um, so I did that for three years in Northern California and then in, in Colorado and decided for a number of reasons that the practice of law, while important and interesting, was not suited to my personality mm. more than anything else. Um, I think really related to the highly antagonistic uh, nature of litigation, which I just found was very much not in line with my personality. Um, and also, I think just realizing that I always wanted to be in academia, you know? I wanted to be in a university environment forever. I needed to figure out a way mm -hmm. to make that happen. And so I decided to go back and get my PhD in sociology. Um, started out uh, getting my master's at the University of Colorado and then finished my PhD at The Ohio State University. Um, and my research focused on uh, comparative indigenous rights with regard to fishing rights in particular in the United States, New Zealand, and Australia. Um, and then I came on board here at USD in 2011. I've um, been teaching in the areas of the sociology of law and environmental sociology ever since. Wow, it sounds like your path has really taken a lot of twists and turns. And how has that been for you? It's been it's been wonderful, actually. I think it's been um, really positive to have mentorship and to have people who have been willing to um, articulate to me that journey, our lives journey are going to be full of twists and turns and that that's okay, that we don't have to know what our path is going to be the minute that we step onto university campus or the minute we step off of it, mm. um, that that's life. And so, you know, having the people around me that have the experience necessary to tell me that and then, you know, for my own part, just being willing to, to jump and make changes when um, I think oftentimes we're told by a lot of our, our peers and educators or whatever that we need to, uh, you know, have a focus on a path 
especially a path that's going to be particularly lucrative. Um, and while my area of the law maybe would never be particularly lucrative, um, it was still you know stable and had the potential for um, providing a comfortable life. So I think um, you know taking that leap into academia from the law was something that I was I was frightened to do um, for all of the reasons of you know not having that security that is uh, related to and embedded in a legal job. Ultimately, it was it was honestly one of the best decisions that I've ever made. Whoa. What inspired you to make that change in the first place? Honestly, I think a lot of it was being real with myself about the limitations of a legal career for me and recognizing that I wasn't happy because what I was doing on a daily basis did not mesh with my identity, didn't mesh with what I was particularly good at. Um, the way that I was used to thinking about social problems. Um, the law itself is geared towards dispute resolution, uh, which makes sense. And it's not really geared towards um, negotiation, nor is it necessarily geared towards resolving broader social inequalities and social problems that I was interested in. So I found myself in highly antagonistic relationships and antagonistic um, environments. Uh, in litigation in particular that I found challenging uh, mm -hmm. in terms of my own personality. And uh, so I think it's, it's somewhere in that path I just had to recognize that on a daily basis I was really unhappy. I was unhappy going to work. I was unhappy, you know, spending nine, ten hours a day under fluorescent lighting churning out legal briefs and then going into courtroom experiences where I didn't feel comfortable with um, with what I was doing and nor with my own ability to argue effectively for my clients. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, as a result of that kind of fear and unhappiness, I really needed to contend with whether or not I could do that for the rest of my life. And if I couldn't, what could I do? What did I want to do? What made you choose sociology? That's a really interesting question that I don't even know that I can explain. <laughs> I only took one sociology class as an undergrad, and mm -hmm. it was this uh, course on nonviolence and the ethics of social action. That's what it was called, and it was a wonderful class. And we, you know, learned about Gandhi, and we learned about you know other <laughs> um, experiences of oppression and activism around the world. And it was very memorable. But it, I never really considered sociology. Um, as a, as a profession um, until I had to consider my next steps and I was looking for a PhD program. Um, in a lot of ways, I figured it would be anthropology because that's what I had known. I had taken a lot of anthropology classes. A lot of people that were working in areas of um, indigenous studies were anthropologists. Um, but I felt like what I was really interested in was you know, contemporary manifestations of conflict involving indigenous people, not necessarily things that were relegated to the past. And as I explored, I realized that sociology was such a, a rich discipline for providing a theoretical foundation for looking at contemporary social problems and issues and activism and mobilization. I just didn't know anything about it prior to jumping in, but the more I learned, the more I realized what a great fit it was. That's a really lucky, like, that's really cool that you you found that. And it's really impressive that as you continued in um, that PhD and, and changing and, and jumping into a whole new way of being and a whole new life, like, it held you too. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely, yeah. No, in, in ways, it just felt, I mean, as mystical as it sounds, it felt like it was meant to be in a lot of ways because it suited me so much that um, it seemed like I had just found the path that, that I was destined to be on in a lot of ways. Um, you know, despite how crazy and kooky that, that honestly sounds. Um, and maybe it's just a reflection of the fact that I had kind of known all along what suited me and it was just doing the work to find that match and maybe I had done that work um, to get there and I didn't really know that I had done it. Um, but, you know, however it worked out, it, it really, it honestly did because um, it, was, it was kind of a perfect match. What do you think inspired you to go into um, law and indigeneity, mm -hmm. indigenous studies and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, that's also a great question. I really credit the faculty mentors that I had when I was an undergrad, I think, in really um, exposing me to different ways of understanding the history of the United States, which I was interested in at the time, being an American studies and history major. Um, understanding that through the lens of, of inequality, which I was also very much interested in. And it was those stories of, you know, of indigenous nations and what they experienced in the process of nation building and conquest that were really compelling to me, especially because of who was teaching those stories. They were really amazing people, including Vine Deloria, who was one of the you know most amazing American Indian activists in the nation's history. So being able to hear from him um, about you these stories from him? really yeah, really, really Whoa. wonderful and inspiring. And so um, you know, I think that's a lot of the reason that I developed this interest and sense of um, I don't know, obligation or responsibility. Uh, as a member of, of the settler population, really to contend with uh, the inequalities of, of colonization and um, and do my part to be able to, you know, further efforts of decolonization, which is ultimately where I've come to in my own research. Mm. What do you do now to continue on that? So, I mean, a lot of it is engage I'm engaging in the research that I'm doing. And, um, you know, this is also something <laughs> that they don't teach you in grad school, but I am now, let's see, uh, eight or nine years post-PhD graduation, and I'm still working on the same work that I was doing <laughs> when I was a grad student. So I am now writing a book manuscript based on my dissertation research, which was looking at um, contemporary indigenous conflict over fishing rights in the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, but it's evolved quite a bit from when I started. It was really a story about social movements and politics and culture, and now it's a story about environmental justice, activism, and decolonization. So my whole way of kind of examining what I've done has shifted because of how I've grown in my field of sociology, but also in terms of my sense of um, the importance of understanding what I'm observing through this lens of change uh, as it pertains to indigenous people that um, understanding decolonization as a process is an important one um, for everybody. And I think it's a, it's a framework that indigenous people and indigenous scholars have been talking about for a long time, but is not one that's become particularly mainstream. And I think that it is becoming that. And I think it's more important now than ever as we address climate change and other issues that I believe indigenous people have unique expertise to engage with as long as 
those structures that have kept them marginalized through colonization can be dismantled. Mm. So anyway, my, I hope my research in some way contributes to this conversation about activism and decolonization in a way um, that, that's helpful to people who are engaging in these fights out there on the streets and in by the, the riverbeds. Exactly, exactly. Wow. What do you think was one of the misconceptions going into being a lawyer and mm. being like this social advocate? Um, what was one of the misconceptions that you came in with? Or some of them? Oh, that's so challenging. Um, I think, so specifically related to the law, I, I think one of the areas where I was naive was in this idea that the law is a force for justice that it's a place where positive social change can and does happen. And what I found through my experience, and now probably should have known already, <laughs> when I started was that um, it's limited. It's limited as all institutions of you know dominant societies are by context and the status quo. And even historically where we have kind of monumental legal decisions for civil rights, for example, they almost never live up to their promise because of the fact that the courts themselves lack kind of enforcement authority, that it requires the rest of society to be on board. It requires the government itself to implement judicial rulings. And so because of checks and balances, which is arguably a positive thing in governance, um, it can really limit the ability of law to uh, to really change society in progressive terms. So I think that would be one of the the, the myths or ideas that I came in with that, that ended up being not what it seemed. How was it when when you realized that that's not what it was? Yeah, I mean, I think discouraging, absolutely. Um, and which doesn't mean that people shouldn't continue to fight the good fight <laughs> through legal channels because it's ultimately necessary. But I think it was also a learning opportunity for me in terms of my own kind of um, growth, but also theoretical development in my work to recognize, you know, trying to put the pieces together as to what would be the most effective places to, uh, from which to assert change. And I think what I learned is that law is an important one, but it, it has to be one of many. And so for real positive social change to happen through social movements, for example, you need to combine lawsuits with uh, activism with um, you know so engagement at the society level to try to change the hearts and minds of the public that all of this stuff needs to be happening simultaneously also the empowerment of the communities themselves that are issued all all of these things have to be happening social movements have to be multi strategic in order to be effective and um, putting all eggs in the basket of litigation is, is rarely going to be the most effective way of, of really trying to move change forward. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, it, again, it's probably something I should have figured out a long time ago, but uh, it's definitely something that's evolved as I've had more experience. And really important to have had that experience, too. So now you can share, because you're a professor, you can share your experiences with um, your students. Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. What, for you, was one of the hardest things going into being a Ph.D. student? Huh, that's a great question because I was so happy to transition from my career, my legal career, into an academic path that I was really optimistic about it. 
and it really lived up to my expectations um, that I didn't experience the same hardships that I think a lot of my peers did, my colleagues who were in grad school, especially those that were younger and maybe jumping right in from undergrad, Mm -hmm. um, because it is very different than undergrad. It's a lot of work, and there's a lot of expectations, and a lot of work for very little compensation. Um, But at the same time, for me, having spent years in a career that honestly made me pretty miserable, um, I was all in. And so I was just soaking everything up. And so for me, it was kind of this ultimately positive experience. And even the, the tedious tasks were stuff that I was really happy to be a part of because it was a departure from what I didn't like about what I was previously doing and I was on the path to what I wanted to be doing. Um, so yeah, I honestly can't answer that in the <laughs> negative. That's really good. Are you happy that you took, you, you're saying that you're happy that you took that time. What do you think... Um, do you feel like would you suggest other people take that amount of time too before they jump into their grad school or yeah I definitely and I don't know how much time you know I would recommend but I definitely think in a perfect world people take some time after they graduate from college to go out there and that doesn't necessarily mean they pursue a different career but have a a host of experiences that they can draw from if it's you know from joining the Peace Corps to traveling to you know living in places that they wouldn't necessarily want to spend the rest of their lives and experiencing um, the conditions and experiences of others, absolutely, I would recommend that time of growth because, um, you know, it can create a lot of fatigue going from a four-year university jumping into a, you know, if you're going to get a PhD, it's seven or eight years. So that's That's a long time. That's a long time. And so I think it makes sense to really know what you're getting into and really want to be getting into it, to have that passion. Mm -hmm. Um, and to give yourself time to decompress from the four years of college. It's not easy to celebrate the successes of being able to make it through um, and to, to refresh your mind and your, your being before you jump into something that's equally, if not more, challenging. Mm. So moving to your sociology and, and law professor right now, um, what, what does that mean to you? I mean, it's everything in in so many ways. I mean, like I said, it's, I've ended up exactly where I always wanted to be without knowing it along the way. Um, And it's such a perfect fit for me. And a place like USD is a perfect fit for me too. Again, I didn't know when I graduated from graduate school what kind of academic career I wanted. I didn't have any experience with a liberal arts university. I was only at large universities before then, and that seemed great. but being here is perfect because it really enables me not only to teach the classes that I want to teach and the ways that I want to teach it and have that freedom, but really the expectation that I engage with my students individually and get to know them on an individual personal level um, is a layer of teaching that I didn't ever really appreciate. Um, and I absolutely do now. So it's, it's kind of perfect. And I also think... Um, teaching in a community like this where we can know our colleagues in a lot of big universities most people don't know people outside of their department or the department down the hall and here we are really encouraged to know each other and to know what we're all doing Um, and because of that I've been able to really engage in a lot of interdisciplinary collaborations 
Um, I'm affiliated faculty with the Department of Environment and Ocean Sciences, which I probably never would have been at a different type of university where I wasn't expected to meet people in that department. Um, and yeah, I'm taking you know, students abroad to New Zealand as part of an interdisciplinary course with environmental scientists and a political scientist. And so just being able to cultivate those experiences, I don't think that I necessarily could do at a place that was bigger um, or had different emphases than, than USD. So it's wonderful. What do you think your biggest moment as a professor has been so far? Oh my goodness, that is incredibly <laughs> challenging. And I have probably have a million different answers. But one of my most memorable uh, moments was um, a couple years ago, I taught a sustainability, integrated sustainability class with uh, environmental scientists and a philosopher. And we had these projects, these interdisciplinary projects, were focusing on campus-based sustainability. And after the course, I decided to take a few of the students and work on one of those projects and move it forward. And uh, so I picked students from different classes, there were three of them, um, actually four of them at the end of the day. And they worked on a campus education project focusing on, um, on water. It was when the California drought was kind of at its worst. So focusing on water conservation. And they created this elaborate multi-level plan about education, as well as turning off the, some water in the fountains and repurposing them um, and using them for different things, like as plantings, for example, instead of having water just flow through them. And this was happening at the same time that they were uh, remodeling the Kalachis Plaza. So, you know, taking road and turning it into turf. Uh, and that was seen as being potentially problematic to these students because it was going to require a lot more water. So anyway, they put together this um, this really elaborate plan, um, and we decided to send it to the new president of the university, and you know just put it out there that this student group was working on this stuff and that he might want to consider some of these alternatives to the plans that they were working on, and he actually invited the students and myself as well as several of the other campus leaders that were involved in um, the, the remodeling of the center of the university and had the students come sit down at a table and speak to these campus leaders. And the students were amazing. They were incredibly well prepared uh, and professional and wonderful. And the president was in all seriousness, considered everything that they said as did the other campus leaders. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the president invited them all to be on uh, an ad hoc committee, basically, where they were potentially be involved in some of the efforts and plans moving forward with the remodel. Whoa. Um, and so the reason that that was just so wonderful and memorable to me is I felt like what I was doing in the classroom, which tied in you know, the things that I think about in terms of social justice and environmental justice, were being practiced by these students in a meaningful way and in a way that was taken seriously by this institution. Um, and so I really saw that as a victory, even though it wasn't one in my own research area or in my, you know, more of the scholarly aspects of my academic career, it was the one that felt the most important to me. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a really big moment. That's huge. And that's really, it speaks to your influence as a professor too, um, and how you're able to empower these students and build them up, and and ultimately, they took the reins and 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 did this amazing project. Um, what about as a lawyer? What was one of the biggest moments for you 
as a lawyer? Yeah, you know, I was young when I was practicing law and I was new. And I think, you know, I forget what the rule of thumb is, the point in time where you start feeling like you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. As an attorney, I think it's like five years, any new career, right? It's like five years until you feel like you actually know what you're doing. And I never got to that point. You know, I practiced law for only three years. Um, and so a lot of it was, was I was learning. Um, and I think for me, the successes that I, that I now understand that they were in retrospect were, were really those learning experiences, being around the people who were, were well-known and well-respected in the areas of Native American law and environmental law and, you know, hearing their stories and their successes and having them help me write a legal brief and, you know, them showing me their perspective. Um, I think what I found most personally rewarding was when I was working up in Northern California for California Indian Legal Services and was invited to the reservations to help the tribes articulate their plans for um, their own issues of environmental justice. So for one tribe, it was uh, potentially working to decommission dams up there to improve flow so that salmon could once again run through their reservation and they could get access to the fishing rights that they had been promised in treaties. Um, and even though my efforts in those projects only went so far because of my limited time, just being invited there and you know, being able to learn from the people whose lives were most impacted by these experiences were the things that I've absolutely taken with me and have continued to shape what I'm doing today as a sociologist. Um, wow. You've helped a lot of different people in different different ways throughout, throughout your time. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, throughout your entire career, We've talked a little bit about this, uh, your challenges and, and stuff, but what do you think have been a few of the sticking points, the biggest challenges for you that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, I, that's a good one, too. I mean, I, one of the things that I think of just with academic careers in general um, is that you have little control over you know, where you live, where you end up. Um, and so for people who are considering an academic career to consider that, you know, if you're wedded to a particular place uh, and it's the place that you choose to go to graduate school or whatever, understanding that if you want to pursue, if you have a dream to be a professor, uh, you might have to give up the expectation that you're going to be able to stay in one area of the country or live in a place that you even can choose in a lot of ways. Um, the reality of an academic career and the academic job market is that there are very few jobs and a whole lot of applicants. And so you have to go where the job is offered. Um, and that can be really challenging for people, especially for people who, you know, might have a family already and might have a partner who has a, a job in a particular place. So recognizing that can be limiting, I think, for some people. Some people might choose to stay where they are and, and maybe lower their expectations for the academic career because of the reality of that. And because a PhD program is seven or eight years, life changes a lot in that time. And so, you know, recognizing that I think can be can be challenging. There's a lot of insecurity mm -hmm. in not knowing what's going to happen at the end of those seven or eight years, especially with the job market being what it is, um, that you might have to move or that you might not ever get that tenure track position. Um, a lot of it is, is luck, honestly. There are a lot of amazing, incredibly skilled uh, PhDs out there that will never have that job just because of the numbers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so recognizing that going in, I think, is really important. Um, I was more fortunate uh, for um, a lot of reasons, but because I was able to go, um, my, my partner was willing to go with me, um, and because I ended up in San Diego. I mean, it's, uh, it's difficult to argue that that Beautiful, was a sacrifice. Beautiful, sunny, exactly. <laughs> by the beach. Yeah, so that could that can definitely be a challenge, and it, it was a little bit of one for me, but maybe not as much as it is for a lot of people in similar situations. That makes sense. Where did you want to end up? I loved Colorado. I really did. It was uh, just, I'd been there since I was 18 years old with just a few years living in Northern California for a time and in Ohio to get my PhD, um, but it was home for so many reasons. It's beautiful. I had, and still have very close friends there. It's a lived in Boulder, Colorado, which is just a magical place if you've ever been there. If you haven't, you should absolutely go. Keep that in mind. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> so I think if I could wave a magic wand and be where I wanted to be, that would be it. But this is a, you know, a very close second. And after being here for almost eight years now, it's really um, become home as well. Mm-hmm. So we've basically gone through most of, most of your focuses, most of your life. Um, what do you think... For someone to end up happy or like in your career or um, as a lawyer, what advice would you give them as somebody graduating soon? I think, I mean, I think being flexible and recognizing that our passions change and we don't always recognize what they are. And also, we may not even recognize that we even have passions at certain times in our life, but to keep looking and keep trying and keep experiencing. Um, Because I think for most people, being able to wed what we're passionate about with what we're good at is the recipe for success. But this isn't something that we have to figure out right off the bat. It's something that happens through trial and error. So don't be afraid to keep looking and keep trying. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate having you here and, and, and for all the work that you've done too. You have been very inspiring to me. So thank you. Thank you for letting me, let me interview you. Um, cool. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture today. I hope to catch you back next week. <laughs>